passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, that you teach us more of who you are, that you reveal your heart to us. God, it is a great honor to be able to hear what you would have to say. And Father, as we open your word to 1 Peter, as we draw this series to a close, God, we pray that your spirit would be here with us, that you would teach us that you would encourage us, and that you would guide us to follow you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1952, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island off of the coast of California all the way to the coast of California. And she swam for 15 hours with one boat on one side of her and one boat on the other side of her to make sure that if she needed help, she would get it. She went for 15 hours until she finally looked up at her mother who was on one of the boats and said, Mom, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. She kept swimming for another hour until, surrounded by fog, she eventually gave up. She got onto the boat, and after she was on the boat, she could see over the fog, and she saw that she had given up just one mile off of the coast of California. Years later, she attempted again, and she said that, and she, she accomplished this task, and, and she said that the key to accomplishing this, the key to making it, is she kept her mind focused on the coast of California the entire time. She took a picture with her mind and just thought of that for the hours upon hours upon hours that she swam. Perseverance can be tough. Perseverance can be especially tough for us when we can't see the end or when we don't understand the purpose of what we are going through. Honestly, we can be like Florence Chadwick in our own lives where we give up in the journey because we don't understand where we are headed and how much longer we have to endure these things. Perseverance in our faith can be especially tough for us. On Tuesday mornings, uh, some of the men here at Crosswinds Church gather at the Dream Center for a time of uh, study. We've been going through the book of Mark and uh, invite you to join us if you are interested in that. Uh, this past week, we looked at Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the sower. And one of the interesting things that we saw as we were looking at that parable, as Jesus tells this story, is that he shares how some people who look like they are good Christians, look like they are going to be faithful in their journey to follow God, eventually fall away. People who look like Christians eventually just give up and stop following him. And he shares three different examples, three different reasons why that happens. And I want to focus on two of those. First one that he shares is for, because of suffering. He says that because of suffering, some people will stop following me. They look like they have good promise in the Christian faith, and then they just give up. A couple of weeks ago, I shared the story of Horatio Stafford, the man who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. He wrote this song after a tragic accident where he lost the majority of his family. Just a few years after he lost his family, he lost another one of his children that had been born to him afterwards. And the church foolishly said that this was a form of, of discipline from God. And he went crazy, left the church, actually started a cult 
all because of his suffering. He wasn't able to endure, wasn't able to persevere through those things. That's one of the reasons why Jesus says we don't endure. Another thing that Jesus uh, tells us in Mark chapter 4 is that some people will fall away because of their love for the world. Some people desire things other than God, and they desire those things more than him, and so they'll actually forsake the Christian truth, and they'll chase after those things. Paul himself, actually, we, for every story of, of Timothy, this man who follows God faithfully after being discipled by Paul, there's a story of a man like Demas. I want to read these words to you from 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This was a man that Paul had poured into, who showed great promise. In fact, in other epistles that Paul had written that were written before the letter of Second Timothy actually shares of how valuable an asset Demas is to Paul. And yet he had a love for the world. And from that love, he was led astray. Endurance can be tough in our lives. And that's why Peter closes this letter. This letter where he talks about suffering, where he talks about hardship with one final command to endure. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to first, pa- uh, first Peter chapter five. And we're actually going to look at verses 12 through 14. Uh, and if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we're, we're actually skipping uh, a section, but we'll come back to that here in a second. But I want to look at verses 12 through 14 first. So hear these words from 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the very end of of Peter's letter, and so he shares some customary greetings. First, he gives a greeting from the person who's delivering the letter to them, and that is uh, Silas or Silvanus. It's the same person, if you remember Paul talking about his journeys with Silas in the book of Acts. And he says that Silas is, is a faithful brother because he's going to be delivering this to you. Not only that, but if there's anything that you don't understand about what I've written, he's going to tell you about it. He's going to explain what I meant when I wrote this. And so he gives you greetings. Second thing he shares is greetings from the church in Rome when he says that she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. This can, be, can seem like it's a bit of a cryptic statement from Peter, but that's not what he's trying to get at. He's trying to use Old Testament imagery of the fact that the people of Israel, when they were held in captivity in Babylon, were still God's people. In the same way, the people in Rome who are God's people, who are part of the church of God, they send their greetings from the very place where the evil government that is causing you this persecution, causing you this suffering, they give you greetings. It's a sign of encouragement to them. And he also gives greetings from John Mark, who is the author of the Gospel of Mark. But I want to zero in on one thing that is said in verse 12. I just want to read verse 12 to you again. It says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter closes this letter with a call to stand firm on the true grace of God. To stand firm upon it. But what is this true grace? 
Well, Peter explains it at the very beginning of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The true grace of God is the gospel. The purest form of God's grace for us is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. It is the fact that we are given an inheritance as his children. And Peter is telling us that whatever situation we find ourselves in, to stand firm. Whether you are experiencing a lot in your life or you have a relatively easy life, stand firm in the gospel. In fact, this is an active command. Maybe a better way of putting it instead of stand firm is actually to stand your ground. It's an active command for us. When the world is decaying and when the world is falling down around us, to stand firm, to stand our ground. I want to ask you, um, or put it this way. What if you just decided to stop following God? What if you just decided to stop pursuing him? Stop reading your Bible, stop praying, stop going to church, stop surrounding yourself with Christians, stop listening to Christian music, stop doing all of that and more. Say you decide to do that for five years. Are you going to be closer to God after those five years? Of course not. Christianity is active. It's not passive. Unbelief is passive. And so that's why Peter calls us to stand firm, to an active calling. That's what this entire uh, section really is, as he sums it up, is to stand firm on the gospel. Stand unmoved upon the good news of God. Stand resolute upon this grace that he has given us. This is crucial for us as Christians. In fact, this is the most elementary command of Christianity. The command to grow in holiness, the command to pray, the command to love, the command to serve, the command to give, the command to do anything. First and foremost is found in this command to stand firm upon the gospel, to remind yourself daily of the good news of what God has done for us. We skipped over verses 6 through 11, and and Peter, in those verses, tells us what happens if we stand firm. He encourages us by telling us what we will be like if we stand firm upon the gospel. And so I encourage you, if you have your Bible, to follow along, starting in verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. What happens when we stand firm on the gospel? First, standing firm on the gospel leads to humility. Last week, we talked a lot about humility. We looked at what will happen in our lives if we are focused on who God is and what and who we are when we look at the world the right way, when we are committed to putting others first. 
But last week, we focused primarily on the horizontal aspects of humility or how our humility affects uh, those who are around us. Remember, we had the command to church leaders to serve, to lead by example. We had the command to the rest of the church to clothe themselves with, with humility in order to serve and to love those who are around them. But here, Peter focuses on the vertical dimension. He focuses on what our humility does for us before God himself. Peter tells us that if we are humble before God, he will one day exalt us. If we are humble before God, if we have the right understanding of who we are before God, he will exalt us. That's the way God works. There are no shortcuts in following God. There's no way to skip out on the humbling ourselves to get straight to the exaltation. Some people try that. They try to skip over the humbling part and go straight to the exaltation. But the flip side of this is, if we exalt ourselves, we will one day be humbled. I can think of no greater example in the Bible than Joseph. Joseph, uh, honestly, could be an example of both of these things, of humbling ourselves before God to be exalted, and also exalting ourselves before God and being humbled after that. So Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was a great man. He had everything. He was uh, probably his father's favorite child. Uh, His father blessed him with a multicolored dream coat, Also, at the same time, he was probably God's favorite son of Jacob at the same time because he had these dreams. And in these dreams, he had visions of his son or his brothers bowing down to him. Not only his brothers, but his father. And and the text doesn't tell us what his heart was like, but I don't think it's too big of a leap to assume that these things kind of got to Joseph's head. That Joseph, the way he tells his brothers about what is going to happen someday got to his head, and he actually exalts himself. But then his brothers have enough. And they fake his death, sell him into slavery, and Joseph spends the next several years, several decades actually, enslaved. God took one who has exalted and humbled him before him. But Joseph learned his lesson, and over the next several years, he faithfully served God, faithfully tried to humble himself before God until one day, decades later, Joseph became the number two leader in all of Egypt. God took one who was humbled, who had humbled himself before him and exalted him and used him in a great and mighty way. It's a very encouraging story for us that that if we humble ourselves, then we can be assured that God will exalt us. But there's a danger of thinking that way. Because sometimes you can think that this is a law of nature. That if I just humble myself, if I'm going through a bunch of junk right now in my life, as long as I remain faithful to God, then someday he's going to put me in charge. Someday he's going to make me the CEO. But that's not what Peter's saying. And that's not what Joseph is saying. Notice what he says about God's plan to exalt us. He says that God will exalt us at the proper time. God, beyond the shadow of a doubt, will exalt you if you are humble before him. But a lot of times that's not on our timetable. A lot of times that doesn't happen in this life. A lot of times that happens actually after death. Paul is an example of this. Paul spent his entire ministry being stabbed in the back by people, 
being persecuted by those who are around him, by seeing people like Demas leave him, abandon him for the world. And there's not a moment in Paul's life, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the rest of Paul's life in the letters, that, that Paul is exalted in this life. We can be confident that Paul is exalted now before God. God was in charge. God knew when the proper time was to exalt Paul. And so he did that. See, when we see what he's saying here, when we see what Paul or Peter is telling us about the proper time that God will exalt us, it reminds us that God has a different timetable than us. It also reminds us that God is the one who is in charge. If we were in charge, we'd probably say that the proper time means right now, because why on earth would we continue to go through this humbling experience? But God knows best. He knows when the right time is for us, and this requires us to trust in God. It requires us to trust that he knows what he is doing, that he has our best interests in mind, and this is what it really means to stand firm on the gospel. In order to stand firm on the gospel, it requires trust. And humility requires trust as well. If you don't stand firm on the gospel, then you're not going to trust God. If you don't trust God, then you're not going to uh, submit yourself to him by humbling yourself to him. And if you don't do that, then you are not going to one day be exalted. Standing firm on the gospel leads to humility. Second thing that Peter tells us is that standing firm on the gospel gives us comfort. Take a look at verse 7. He says, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. While we are standing firm on the gospel, it involves us casting our cares upon God. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you, uh, just raise your hands, uh, how many of you struggle with anxiety from time to time? Okay, there's a, there's a few of us here. Um, now, how many of you uh, feel guilty when you struggle from anxiety because the Bible tells you not to worry? I, I feel guilty. I uh, want to encourage us. Uh, actually, anxiety is, is somewhat normal. It's a part of us being finite, of having to rely on those who are around us. It's just part of, of being human. I have a friend uh, who is the opposite of an anxious person. Actually, he is one of those really carefree people that uh, can be completely content without having a plan. And he will be just completely content following God at a moment's notice wherever he is. A couple of years ago, he was uh, doing mission work actually in London, and we were having a phone conversation, and I was asking him how things were going, and, and he shared uh, that he was struggling because he was beginning to feel a lot of anxiety. He's beginning to feel a lot of, of worry, and I was confused because this is not the kind of guy who experiences this. And so I asked him, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, Jordan, I haven't been able to sleep well at night. It takes me forever to get to sleep because I just can't shut my mind off because of all the things I'm thinking about. I'm beginning to get a little more concerned, wondering if, if he's suffering from insomnia or something like that. And so I asked him, well, how long is it taking you to get to sleep? And he said, five minutes. Most of us are not like that. You know, most of us would be thankful if it took us only five minutes to fall asleep. Anxiety is normal. But handling it ourselves is not normal. Taking care of it on our own 
is not normal. God created us to live in community. God created us for the support of those who are around us. And that's what he's saying here. We should cast our cares upon God. We have needs that we cannot fulfill. That we have to rely on others. And Peter is saying, rely on God. Cast your cares upon him. Use others, rely on others, because God has given you a church family for those things. One author shares an example of, of why anxiety is normal, or, or how we can look at it. And he says, um, he's a Midwest author, and so he shares a story uh, that many of us, I'm sure, are hoping will happen very soon. But uh, sometimes, uh, when you get into March, or honestly, even into April, here in the Midwest, the snow begins to melt. And it gets really dirty on the streets. And your windshield can just get covered with dirty snow. Now when that happens, what do you do? Do you frantically just reach your hand out the window and try to wipe the windshield free with just your hand? Do you just say, well, that's just the way it is and I'm just going to keep going? Or do you just pull off the road and, and not move until things get better? Oh, what you do is you press the little button, I don't know what it's called, and the windshield wiper fluid comes out and cleans your windshield. And he says that that's the exact same thing in our lives. That sometimes anxieties are going to come upon us. Sometimes we're going to get worried, just like when slush ends up on our windshields. Instead of frantically trying to fix it ourselves, instead of just trying to deal with it, we're supposed to give it to God. Just a simple, conscious decision to give our anxiety to God. Of course, that's not what the world tells us. The world tells us the exact opposite, that we should be able to handle these things ourselves. We either don't want to rely on others, especially on God, because we either don't want to bother them, or we are just too prideful to ask for help. When Crystal and I first got married, we lived in a second-floor apartment. And when we would go grocery shopping, uh, we would have to bring all those groceries up to the second floor. And my commitment was that we would only ever make one trip up the stairs, even if I dislocated my shoulders, bringing those groceries upstairs. And I had a commitment to do that. A lot of times I ended up carrying way too many bags, and, and Crystal very easily could have taken some more from me. But I refused. Maybe it was some petty reason. I don't understand why. Uh, why I act the way I act sometimes. And that's the way the world handles anxiety. Handles our cares and concerns. We, we carry more than we are meant to carry. When there are those who are around us. Very capable of helping us. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 verse 25. He says this. Therefore I tell you do not be anxious about your life. What you, will, uh, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. A few chapters later, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, I will, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The key to overcoming anxiety is not to beat ourselves up, when we start to worry. It's not burying it ourselves. It's not ignoring it. It's giving it to God. 
making a conscious decision to trust God to take care of us. Why? Because he cares for us. God is never going to blow us off. God is never going to think that our problems are too small and petty, that he's going to worry about something else that's a little bit more important. When we have a lot of stuff that's thrown on our plate, we have to prioritize because we can't handle everything. But that's not the way God works. God works in a very different way because God can handle everything. God can show the same amount of concern for Christians right now on the other side of the world who are being hunted by ISIS as he can when you are concerned and worried about that cold that your children have that keeps coming back. God doesn't have to prioritize because he cares for us. He loves us and he wants to care and carry those burdens for us. That's just mind-blowing to me. Not only that he is able to and that he will, but that he wants to. It shows the, the great love that God has for us. But the honest thing is, the, the true thing is, that a lot of us, this is never going to become a natural thing. We're never going to be able to just subconsciously give our anxieties and our worries to God. It takes a conscious decision to do that. To remind ourselves to trust in God. And that's where standing firm on the gospel comes into play. Remembering the promises of what God has done for us, what God has promised to continue to do for us. And from that point, to continually, consistently, daily, give our concerns up to God. When we stand firm on the gospel, it will lead to our comfort. Third thing Peter tells us is that standing firm on the gospel gives us victory. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter reminds us that in order for us to stand firm, we have to be on guard. Notice the language that he uses here. This is the third time in this letter that he has told us to be sober-minded. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this calling to be sober-minded, and we saw that it was in reference to the end of all things, that we were called to live with an eternal perspective in order to live life in light of the end. But Peter doesn't just say live life in light of the end here. He also tells us that we should live life in light of the enemy. Peter tells us a spiritual reality, that the devil, the enemy, is prowling around right now, searching for someone to devour. Our society is fascinated with the occult, and the church is not immune to that. But I see that there are two great dangers that that most people uh, have to wrestle with. Each and every one of us has a tendency to go one way or the other. First is, a lot of us uh, have a tendency to think that um, spiritual things don't exist. Uh, that, That demons, well, they just don't happen today. Of course, if you were out in the middle of Africa, surrounded by tall grass, and and you knew that a lion was hunting you, it wouldn't do you any good to close your eyes and to pretend it wasn't there. It'd be foolish and dangerous. On the other side, we have some people who see that there's a demon behind everything. Satan moved my car keys. Well, no, probably you just forgot where you put them. The devil made me do it. No, you're just probably a sinful person who you know, likes doing sinful things. We have a tendency to 
go towards one of these extremes. And so Peter's words here are very helpful for us. What does Scripture tell us about the enemy of our souls? What does Scripture tell us about Satan? Well, let's look at a couple passages. First, picking up here again in verse 8, I want to reread it to you. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. A couple years ago, uh, I was in East Africa, and I had to go to the bathroom one night in the middle of the night. And to go to the bathroom, which is a couple hundred yards away, uh, I had to walk alongside this really tall grass in the middle of the compound where we were staying. And, and while I'm walking along this tall grass at like two in the morning, I'm, I let the, my imagination get the best of me. And I begin to think, well, what if there's a lion in there? And after I start to think of that, I, I take off in a dead sprint um, because, you know, a groggy Jordan cannot run the king of the jungle. Uh, it's, it's just kind of the way my mind works. It was a figment of my imagination, but this is not. The devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. We must be on guard because he is active in the world today. John chapter 8 tells us one of the ways he's active in the world. He calls him the father of lies. This is what it says. It says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The vast majority of the work that Satan does in this world is not through demon possession. It is through deception. It's through spreading lies. And probably the biggest lie that he will spread is to cause us to doubt God's word. Cause us to call into question God's word. In fact, this is the very first thing that he does in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice his approach. Did God really say? He calls into question the word of God. He begins to put a seed of doubt in Eve's mind of whether God is trustworthy, whether we can trust what God has said. He does the same thing today, too. When someone says what God's word tells us, you can often hear a little voice in the back of your head saying, well, did God really say that? I know that's what the Bible says, but is that really what God was getting at? Is that really what that passage means? Did God really say Another thing he does is he's the great accuser. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan stands before God accusing the people of God of their sin. Trying to get God to condemn them before him for the sins that they have done. In fact, the word Satan, the name Satan is literally just the Hebrew word for accuser. He is the great accuser. Not only that, but Satan hates the people of God. This is from Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
Now, that's uh, kind of an interesting passage because it's, uh, it's written in apocalyptic literature, and so it's very symbolic. Uh, but the dragon is Satan. He's cast out of heaven, and he's pursuing this woman and her male child, or the church. He wants to devour. He hates the church. He wants to kill the church. See, Satan hates God himself, and so he's going to hate the people of God. He's going to hate God's children. He wants to see those who bear the image of God destroyed. He hates the people of God. Another thing, and we could go on and on. I just want to focus on one more thing. He desires to be God. This is again from Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, meaning the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is the ultimate goal of Satan, is to become God, is to receive worship from those who are around him. And this is what happened in the beginning, even before time, before the earth was formed. Satan desired to be God, and so God cast him out of heaven. Why is God so opposed to our pride? Why does God want us to be humble in our lives? It's because when we seek after pride, when we try to exalt ourselves, we're being exactly like Satan. We're trying to be God ourselves. Now, when you look at that list, when you see that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, when you see that he is the father of lies, that he lies about God's word, that he accuses us before God, he hates us, and he is wanting to be God. We can just take a step back and say, oh my goodness, how on earth are we supposed to overcome this? Peter gives us the answer in verse eight or verse 9. He says, resist him. The devil is a formidable enemy. There's no question about that. But the key to overcoming him, the key to beating him, is simple. To resist him. To stand firm on the gospel. When we suffer in our lives, it's easy for us to doubt. It's either easy for us to wonder whether God really cares about us or whether God is really there for us. But remember what we just read in verse 7. Verse 7 says that God cares for us, and that's why he will carry our anxieties. What is the great lie of Satan? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And so when we suffer, we have to remind ourselves of the gospel. We have to stand firm on this good news, on this grace that God has given us. Because it is through the gospel that you have overcome. The Apostle John tells us this in 1 John chapter 5. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Your faith is what helps you to resist the devil. Your faith is what allows you to overcome. It is through the gospel that the enemy, Satan himself, is chained. Stand firm because God has given us victory. And the fourth and final thing, Standing firm on the gospel of God leads to a happy ending. It leads to a happy ending. Look at, look at uh, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and forever. 
and never. Amen. The suffering that you experience in this life is temporary. However, how much it is, it is temporary. However, how long it goes on, it is temporary. Because victory has already been won. If you look at Hollywood, you know how every Hollywood movie ends. Ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Where do you think Hollywood got that? If you notice, basically every single movie in Hollywood follows the exact same plot line. Everything starts good, then something bad happens, then someone makes things right, and then you go back to good. Where does this pattern come from of good, bad, fixed, good? Where does it come from? Why is it so appealing to us? It's because it's the gospel. It's the true story of what God has done for us, the things were once good, and then when he sinned, Christ came to redeem us, to make all things right someday. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the story of God, that all things will one day be made right. As we've worked our way through this series, we looked at what our hope is in hard times. We've been reminded constantly that our hope is not ourselves. Our hope cannot be found in those who are around us. Our hope is only found in the God of all grace who called you to himself. That's where our hope is found. And such an appropriate way for us to end by focusing on the grace of God. It's not the perfect example, but the movie Taken, which came out probably 10 years ago, uh, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. If not, uh, story of Liam Neeson and uh, searching for his daughter who has been captured, captured by sex traffickers. And he does whatever, necess- whatever is necessary to go and rescue his daughter. Notice his daughter doesn't come searching for him. He goes and gets his daughter. And that's really the same thing that happens in the gospel. See, the gospel isn't just the fact that Jesus died for us. It is also the fact that God came to get us. That God chose us to be his children. That God would go to whatever lengths were necessary, including dying on a cross to make us his children. And friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news that we celebrate here. That is the good news that we stand firm upon. And Peter closes this uh, book, honestly, by looking or speaking of the power of Jesus when he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I just want to close in that same way. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that the dominion is yours forever and ever. God, we thank you that you are the great king. That you are the one who reigns forever and ever. Even in the midst of our difficulties, the struggles that we experience, you rule. And you will rule forever and ever. Jesus, help us to look to you in hard times. Help us to stand firm on the gospel upon the good news of your victory. And help us to continue to long for the day when you will appear once more. When you will make all things right and when we will stand justified before you. 
God, as you gather all of your people home, I pray that we would echo the words of the Apostle John, saying, come, Lord Jesus. And just as Peter says, to you be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.